Good evening. I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas with the Education Debates. Since the 1980s, a spate of books has lamented the decline of the liberal arts in contemporary universities. From the closing of the American mind to the university in ruins, these books have used images of decline, decay, and death to picture the shaky state of the humanities. Their point of view is summed up in a recent essay by Leon Craig, professor of philosophy at the University of Alberta. Liberal education, he writes, has but a furtive and beleaguered existence in the modern university. Yet in the midst of this gloomy rhetoric, in recent years there's been a revival of the liberal arts, from the foundation year at the University of King's College in Halifax to the Arts One program at UBC to Carlton's new College of the Humanities, new great books programs have been created across the country. Tonight, we look at the condition of the liberal arts in the university in part 14 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. The most widely read book on education in recent memory must surely be the late Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind. When Time magazine interviewed Bloom in 1988, the year after the book was published, he reported that 800,000 copies had already been sold, and presumably many more have been sold since. The book's original title, according to Friends of Bloom's, was Souls Without Longing, a name that gives a good idea of the book's argument, though it might not have produced the same vogue as the one the publisher gave it. According to Bloom, the souls of today's students have grown dull and jaded, and the great majority have lost the passion for ideas, the taste for the sublime, and the desire for truth that animate the life of the mind. For this, he blames a variety of contemporary phenomena. Among others, the coarse, desensitizing character of popular culture, the sexual revolution, lack of religious training, and a weakening of the family. Once, he says, students arrived at the university in an eager, innocent, idealistic state. Now they arrive as precociously wised-up relativists, with few illusions left to lose. Consequently, Bloom believes that liberal education lacks what he calls a soil in which it can take root. Most students no longer read with any real intensity. As captives of the glittering, technologically expanded present, they will not readily believe that old, hard-to-read books hold any great or worthwhile secret. And as persons without deep religious or moral foundations, there is as little for education to work against as there is for it to work on. Bloom's critics, who have been as numerous as his supporters, have denounced this portrait as a caricature. But even for them, the book has served as a touchstone. Many similar lamentations would follow, but Bloom's remains, for me, the broadest, the most philosophically articulate, and the most charming of these books. I have taken it as my starting point here, because it set the terms for a continuing discussion about the vitality and purpose of liberal education in the contemporary university, a discussion I want to take up again tonight. In preparing the program, I talked with three professors, all engaged in expounding old and enduring books to undergraduates. The first, Clifford Orwin, was a student and later a friend and colleague of Alan Bloom's. He teaches political philosophy at the University of Toronto, 
and his most recent book is an anthology he co-edited called The Legacy of Rousseau. Orwin has long been a reader and student of the 18th century French philosopher, but he says that Rousseau's philosophy of education is in many ways the antithesis of his own approach to liberal education. The presumption in Rousseau is that human beings are free to begin with and that bad education enslaves or subjects them. So that what's required is what Rousseau calls a negative education, an education that preserves that initial freedom from the subjecting tendencies of society. Liberal education, liberal education is traditionally understood, agreed with Rousseau that the opinions of society subject us, limit us, um, prevent us from becoming human beings in the full sense. But it took the view that there was no natural freedom, that all human beings were born into societies, that all human beings grew up as members of societies with the opinions that defined membership in that society, that we all are in need of liberation, and that the purpose of reading great works from other times and places was precisely to free one's mind from the too narrow perspective on life um, in which one is raised no matter what society one is raised as a member of. So that the whole purpose of a liberal education was not to impose views on the individual, but to give him the wherewithal to critically evaluate the views that were imposed on him by his society. This is the view of liberal ed education that I take. This is the view of li liberal education that is opposed, obviously, by those who regard liberal education insofar as it's centered on books from the Western tradition as an imposition of the Western tradition understood as something monolithic and homogeneous on the minds of the students. Whereas my claim would be that the Western tradition was never monolithic, never homogeneous. For one thing, what defines the Western tradition, what is the source of its vitality, is the tension between reason and revelation, which would necessarily permeate any education in the classics of the West. And because I take the view of liberal education as itself liberating in the most significant way, because that our minds be free, is obviously the crucial aspect of any liberation. I welcome the broadening of liberal education to include non-Western works. So I have no objection whatsoever to broadening the so-called canon. But if the reason given for broadening the canon demolishes the canon, namely the reason that it is inherently oppressive or elitist to regard some books as more worth reading than others, some thinkers as more worth considering than others, that of course makes liberal education simply impossible. And that viewpoint I strongly oppose. Liberal education, as Orwin conceives it, has certain prerequisites. The very idea rests on a distinction between those studies which are free, which is what liberal literally means, and those which are bound to some practical end. Such freedom demands uncommitted time, a sheltered space, and a certain withdrawal from worldly urgencies. 
Such conditions were once supposed to define universities, but Orwin says that during the 20-odd years of his teaching career, they have become more and more rare. I think that it's increasingly the case that the attitude of the students toward the university is primarily a vocational one, that they don't come to the university with very high expectations that what they learn there is going to change their lives. Rather, they expect it to qualify them for further professional study or for immediate entry into the job market. Now, of course, that was always um, a concern of students. Uh, universities have always fulfilled a quasi-vocational function. There's no doubt about that. But it seems to me that one of the ways in which it's less pleasant to be a teacher at the university now than it was when I first came is that it's ever harder for the students to get their heads into their studies. For one thing, increasingly they hold part-time or even full-time jobs outside the university. There are an extraordinary number of students now who hold full-time jobs while also trying to be full-time students. And it seems to me that that's virtually an impossible combination. Their heads tend to be in their jobs, not in the university. And they tend to ask of the university that it provide them with a, a degree with the minimal amount of commitment of their time. In as much as university has ceased to be a place where students can reflect on the society without being fully subject to all of its pressures, uh, where they can gain a certain detachment on the workaday world, and instead is just an aspect of an increasingly frantic workaday world. That, I think, has been very bad for the experience of learning and teaching. This hectic atmosphere, in Orwin's view, makes it difficult for students to sustain the concentration demanded by classic books. And the difficulty is compounded, he says, by the fact that many are now poorly prepared to enter universities in the first place. It seems to me that the Ontario high schools are less and less emphasizing education in reading and writing. I'm not in a position to comment on the competence of the students in math or science or computers. I simply don't see it. But so far as their basic skills of reading and writing are concerned, those skills, in my view, have very much declined in the last 25 years, partly because the students don't have the store of knowledge which is necessary to bring to these books in order for them to be intelligible. That when you get students who have never heard of the Renaissance or Reformation and you ask them to read a book by Machiavelli, they simply don't have that general cultural context uh, which you know, asking them to read Machiavelli assumes. I say this not because I think Machiavelli ought to be taught as simply a representative figure of um, the Renaissance or the Reformation, but because if you don't know anything um, about the Renaissance or Reformation, you won't be able to make head or tail of Machiavelli's presentation of the church or you know, any other aspect of the society of his day. I also think that they simply haven't had the practice in reading difficult books and writing about them that we used to get in high school. For me, the transition from high school to university was one of 
degree rather than of kind. Already in high school, I had read a great many difficult books, Dante, Shakespeare, Milton. I'd been asked to write essays on those books. Um, we had teachers who um, graded those essays very rigorously, both with regard to their content and with regard to their form. That, it seems to me, just isn't there anymore. Increasingly, students seem to regard difficult books as being written in a foreign language, even if the language in which the books was written was English. The notion that the very act of reading requires thinking, the one can't read a work without thinking about it, not simply because one can't form one's judgment without thinking about it, because one can't even understand what the author is saying without devoting considerable thought. This is quite alien to them. Some of them are enthusiastic when they discover about the possibility and necessity of such reading. Others, uh, however, are very sullen. They regard it as an imposition. High school hasn't prepared them for this, you know, and they wonder why it is that their professors are forcing it upon them, especially since, again, they don't have the basic commitment to the value of studying these works that the high schools used to try to inculcate. Yet another difficulty for liberal studies is the challenge that has recently been mounted to the authority of the Western tradition. The challenge is of two kinds. First, it is said that this tradition perpetuates a worldview distorted by racism, imperialism, and patriarchy, and that it is therefore oppressive and in need of revision. Second, it is said that teaching this tradition puts undue emphasis on European heritage and neglects other equally worthy cultures. This second proposition is sometimes called multiculturalism. Orwin has no objection to it insofar as it asks for a broadening of the curriculum. He himself has undertaken a serious study of Buddhism as part of a book he's writing on the political ramifications of compassion. What troubles him is the relativist interpretation of multiculturalism, which holds that all cultures are equal because there are no principles transcending culture by which they can be evaluated. This view renders meaningless the question that lies at the very heart of a liberal education, the question of what is good. Why ask if all cultures are to be judged only by their own criteria? Orwin thinks that this kind of multiculturalism produces, in Hegel's wonderful expression, a night in which all cows are black. It's a monoculture rather than a genuine multiculture. The monoculture is defined essentially by cultural relativism and what is presumed to follow from this cultural relativism, which is the equal recognition of all cultures within the university. So that rather than have diversity, one actually has a rather pallid and um, in some cases a quite dogmatic uniformity. That in essence, what it means to accept multiculturalism is to reject the primacy of Western culture in a way which is dismissive, even hostile, and indignant. Again, somehow Western culture is the enemy or the villain in the drama of multiculturalism as, as that drama is cast in the universities. On the one hand, one is deprived, therefore, of any incentive to take the great works of Western culture seriously. 
Either they're irrelevant to us today, anachronistic, outworn, or they're downright um, oppressive and the effects of their oppressiveness linger with us still. On the other hand, one gains no real incentive to master the great works of non-Western cultures. Because as a cultural relativist, one can't regard any of those cultures as authoritative either. Therefore, the teaching of multiculturalism tends to be the teaching of an ideological position rather than a genuine broadening by instructing students in the ways of other cultures. So my general view is that the effect of cultural relativism, of which one might describe you know, multiculturalism as the political wing, is not to broaden the students in any significant way, but rather paradoxically to narrow them. Relativism, according to Orwin, destroys the motive for thinking deeply about the great works of any culture, thus depriving students of any way to escape the shallows of their own preoccupations. On the question of what works have this liberating property, he thinks there is room for wide variation. There need be no set canon, he says. Canon is a word that I never use. Uh, because my general view is that canons belong in churches rather than universities. If by a canon you mean a dogmatically authoritative um, group of writings, uh, such as the word canon arose to describe, that is to say, um, the Bible, as it was accepted by the various sects, each having its own canonical version of the Bible. And that, I think, belongs um, in the church, not in the university. So I think canon is a word that is more appropriate for enemies of great books to use, and which they use with great gusto because they want to draw the parallel between the university and what they take to be the stultifying practice in the older churches. I have never taught a work because um, it was in the canon. Some works in the so-called canon speak to me, others don't. I've even been credited by a fellow scholar with expanding the canon. Uh, since my favorite writer, Thucydides, usually described as an historian, was never regarded as a member of the canon of political philosophy, the discipline in which I teach, yet I've made the case that his exclusion was unjust, um, that in fact he ranks among the greatest political thinkers, proof that even dead white males have been unfairly excluded from the canon. <laughs> So I, as I say, teach many works that aren't usually regarded as part of the canon, um, and I don't begrudge um, my colleagues the right to do the same. I do, however, hold the view that there can be such a thing as a work of permanent human relevance that does speak to human beings as human beings, that's not merely a cultural artifact which incarnates the opinions the limitations, the injustices of the particular culture from which it springs. I believe that the purpose of education, especially at the university level, is precisely to give one detachment from one's own culture, to teach one to try to view one's culture in a broader perspective than the perspective in which it views itself, to view one's culture um, impartially. I do think that that's possible. I think that it's the only reasonable goal of a university education, considered as an education, the purpose of which is to form whole human beings. And I think that the appropriate means by which 
such education must proceed is reading the works of those past human beings who have the greatest claim to um, have succeeded in this objective. Orwin's account of the purpose of a university education is obviously not the view that currently prevails. When provincial governments judge the universities they pay for, they tend to look at labor market outcomes, not the number of students freed from petty and conventional opinions. And yet, Orwin says finally, in the midst of all the discouragements of which he's spoken, he continues to find a certain number of avid and receptive students. I can't be entirely pessimistic because I do believe, on the basis of my own experience as a teacher, that these works do still speak to a significant number of the students who are exposed to them, even if these students have no significant background in such studies. There are students for whom studying these works makes a big difference. And because I live in Toronto, the city that no Canadian seems to want to leave, many of my past students uh, still live in the city, and I'm forever having the experience of people coming up to me on the TTC and saying, um, you won't remember me, Professor Orwin, but I was your student in such and such a course. And I still read the books that you assigned in that course. That, it seems to me, is the ultimate reward for a teacher, that his students, looking back on their university years, recognize that this aspect of their education was, in fact, the most valuable one. One of the characteristics of those books that Clifford Orwin calls works of permanent human relevance is their ability to reveal and illuminate the situation of their readers. We may be given a clearer view of the unquestioned assumptions on which our way of life rests, or we may be shown a different world which reveals the limitations of our own. Leah Bradshaw teaches in the Liberal Studies program at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, where she's a professor in political philosophy. She says that one book she has found particularly helpful in making her students aware of their own assumptions is Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Émile. The book, part novel, part treatise, part philosophical romance, describes the education of a boy named Émile, a model education designed to produce a citizen in whom the claims of nature and society have been harmonized. It first appeared in 1762, and it has been one of the wellsprings of modern educational thinking ever since. I'll come in just a moment to Leah Bradshaw's account of teaching this book to contemporary students, but in order to explain the work's peculiar impact, I must first say a bit more about Rousseau's philosophy. It's summed up in what is probably the most famous sentence he ever wrote. Man is born free, but is everywhere in chains. He bases the assertion that we are born free on an imagined state of nature, a state before socialization, in which Rousseau claims that humans were independent, self-contained wanderers without the slavish dependence on the opinions of others that characterizes the civilized person. The task that Rousseau sets himself in a meal, Leah Bradshaw says, 
is to devise a plan of education in which something like this state of nature can be reproduced while still preserving civil society. Rousseau starts with this young boy in Emile, who interestingly has no parents, and the boy is brought up in a, in a kind of bubble where he's to be immunized as much as possible from the influences of others. In early childhood, Rousseau wants to raise the child, and this is a, a critical part of Emile, to understand that there was no conflict between his will and the designs of the world. And so everything has to be orchestrated very carefully in, in, sorry, in Emile's childhood um, so that he will not experience any tension, really, between his own independence, his own desires, and the obstructions of the world and other human beings. And that's really to produce, I think, in Emile, this core of independence, which Rousseau thinks is fundamental to what it is to be human. The process of education changes dramatically at puberty. And so once sexuality is introduced, his education must be converted to a political education. Emile has to be integrated into society. He has to accept political responsibility. He has to accept responsibility for his family. All of that, Rousseau tells us emphatically in Emile, is artificial. It's artificial. It's not natural. The family is artificial. Politics is artificial. Everything that we associate with civil society is an artifice. Emile is incorporated in these artificial structures through his attachment to an idealized woman named Sophie. She's introduced, Leah Bradshaw continues, about two-thirds of the way through the book. Sophie's education is to be dramatically different. From early childhood, Sophie is to be instructed that she has no independence, that she is to be completely governed by the opinions of others, that she is to have no views of her own, and their union is supposed to be the foundation of all of Emile's assumed status as a good citizen, as a dutiful citizen of the world. Political community, from Rousseau's point of view, is in some ways orchestrated by women. I mean, it's women who have a vested interest in permanence and stability and community and civility because they have a vested interest, according to Rousseau, in keeping men attached to the family and attached to political structures and so on. Women have this vested interest in the first place as childbearers, Rousseau believes. The dependence this imposes on them makes them promote the passage from the natural to the civilized state. They civilize, as in Sophie's case, by their obedience. As Alan Bloom puts it in the introduction to his translation of Emile, woman rules man by submitting to his will and knowing how to make him will what she needs to submit to. These sexist ideas, according to Leah Bradshaw, have little appeal for her students. And yet, she says, they are deeply drawn to the portrait of Emile. I think that the, particularly the, the education of Emile in the early part of the book and the way in which Rousseau sets up Emile and what Emile wants, that is to say he wants to be completely sovereign over himself, he wants to be completely free, he wants to live this life where he experiences no conflict between his desires and the world. What I realized when I first taught this book is that my students immediately identified with that, unlike any other text I had ever taught. Like They read this, and their response, for the most part, is, this is absolutely right. This is exactly the way I think children should be raised. This is exactly what I want. I want sovereignty. I want independence. I want there to be a complete congruence between what I want and what the world will offer me. 
So I found that was an amazing as a pedagogical tool because it drew them into philosophical questions in a, in a way that I didn't find with any other text. The shock came when we, because I, what I do is I start and I have them read the Emile book by book, so I don't t they don't have any sort of overarching view at the beginning of what's coming. And as they read carefully through this book, when they get to Sophie, they're stunned. They're stunned. The women are outraged. They, when they get to Sophie, they say, well, this is not me. I, I feel like Emil. I, I want what Emil has. I don't identify with this at all. And even the male students, when they get to Sophie, say, well, you know, we don't buy this at all. But what they all agree on is that they like the portrait of Emil, the, the males and the females. Now, what does that say? What that says to me by the you know, end of the book is that this tenuous basis on which Rousseau has really rested, civility, politics, the structure of the family, is unfathomable to these students. They don't accept it. When I see that students don't accept anything about his construction, but they accept the rudiments of his view of what natural human beings are like, then I see it as my task as a teacher to try and move from there to show them why their fundamental vision of human beings is wrong, because I don't believe it's true. What Leah Bradshaw hopes that her students will see through her explication of Emile is the inadequacy of the modern account of society as an artificial and merely contractual arrangement. She is then able to lead them towards what she regards as a truer account of things. An older view, which I find in Plato and Aristotle, is a, you know, a view of human beings that's radically different, and that is that human beings are born into an order. And uh, I mean, I use Aristotle's famous statement here that man is by nature you know, a being who lives in a polis, or man is by nature a, a political being. And what Aristotle means by that is not that that human beings are instinctively political, but that human beings are born with a predisposition toward living in communities, and even above that, a predisposition toward the pursuit of truth. I mean, that's what human beings are. Then their nature gravitates in that direction. Now, it's possible, Aristotle understood, I think, perfectly well, you can find passages in Aristotle that illuminate this, that it's possible to strip human beings down to their instinctive components, you know, and, and which would give you a much sort of cruder picture of what human beings are. But human beings in their fullest sense are these beings who live not just for themselves, which is Rousseau's picture, but they live for others, both in family and in political community. And then ultimately they, they live for the highest thing, which is the pursuit of truth. And that's Aristotle's starting point, that that's what human beings are. And so everything that Aristotle prescribes for politics follows from that vision. You know, that, that uh, families, communities, and so on are the natural habitat for human beings. They're natural because they're good. Now, it seems to me that uh, if, you know, to, to understand Aristotle, to accept what Aristotle says, of course, you have to move to the highest thing in Aristotle, which is that there is order and there is truth and that that informs the way that we live as human beings. Rousseau does not have that. Rousseau does not have that high, that understanding of the highest things. So he begins with a stripped-down view of, of human beings in their natural condition, without any transcendence, if I can use that word. And so, of course, Rousseau believes that everything about civilization, including the family, political society, and I might say even philosophy, is artificially constructed. Well, it seems to me, broadly speaking, that if you don't believe that human beings are naturally inclined toward family, community, and so on, 
Nothing that you do is going to be able to uphold it. It's going to crumble. The institutions of civil society, if you ground them on principles that you think are artificial, will crumble. If you ground them on things that you think are natural, then they will survive. So this is the big question for me. I mean, what is natural? What is natural? I believe the Aristotelian Platonic, I put them together, some people wouldn't, but I do, vision of human beings is truer than the modern account through Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. It's truer because it makes more sense. The problem, pedagogically, is how do you get students who are historicized into a Rousseauian world to see that, that it's possible to live one's life with a different vision. One of the ways of bringing this possibility into view, Leah Bradshaw thinks, is by close reading of works like Emile. Rousseau's book manifests in a fully articulated form, philosophical premises that often remain mute and unexamined in her students' thinking. This is its greatness. Close reading can uncover these buried assumptions and expose their inadequacies. What he tries to produce in Emile, you know, from an early age, is the sense of self-completion, self-containment, so that Emile will be a whole person, that he will not feel alienated in the world, that he will be self-sufficient, but at the same time able to cope with, you know, others in civil society. Now, still, the question comes up, of course, what does that wholeness consist of? And so that's where I, I go back to the difference between this and the Platonic Aristotelian version thing. There is no good in Rousseau. There is no articulation anywhere in his philosophy of what that wholeness would lead toward. I mean, what is the good that Emile strives for, other than a kind of self-satisfaction and self-completion. What's missing is the barometer, if you like, the, uh, by which you would measure what is a good person as opposed to a not good person, what is a complete life as opposed to an incomplete life, what is a happy life. And, and so I think all those, all those strains are already in Rousseau. You know, to be the person that you want to be, or to you know, um, actualize oneself, is actually very central to Rousseau's thesis. The question is, what is the self? What is oneself? And it varies. Rousseau does not give you any substantive criteria by which you, one could judge the self. So in that sense, he's very contemporary. And I think a lot of pedagogical theory, it seems to me, follows from this idea. You know, you're supposed to find the child's inner self and realize its full potential, but we don't, we can't really talk in any meaningful way about what that potential is. Uh, you know, only, only Emile knows for sure who he is and what he wants. That comes from Rousseau, I think. Leah Bradshaw is persuaded that the ancient account of human beings as part of a natural order is superior to the modern quest for an unlimited but increasingly empty freedom. She shares this view with many contemporary conservatives, notably Alan Bloom, whose closing of the American mind I discussed earlier However, she's not nearly as discouraged or as derisory as Bloom about the contemporary student. When Bloom's book first came out, she wrote a long review essay defending it from the accusation of elitism. But as time has passed, she says, she has come to question Bloom's view that today's students have been ruined for humane studies by their cultural conditioning, or what she calls their habituation. In some ways, I think that if one, if one takes uh, Bloom's position seriously, then, you know, habituation counts for almost everything. So if you have a child who has been 
formed in a certain way, as you said, exposed to too many things, and whose soul, to use uh, Bloom's terms, has been flattened by things in the world to the extent that the child has no passion for learning and no quest, you know, no desire for truth, then uh, that seems pretty dismal. But I guess I've come to, around to the view, and this is a consequence of not, it's not, it's not just um, abstract thinking, it's of dealing with students, that, you know, the, the sort of the material of what's human is more than that. I mean, habituation is something, but it's not everything. So I think that, uh, that students are not as deracinated by modern experience as Bloom seemed to think they were. See, I agree that with him that their experiences are pretty much the way he describes them, but I don't find that students are as incapacitated as Bloom would say they are. And uh, the innate yearning is still there, but you have to track it, and it's hard to find. It's much harder to teach, I think, now, because you do have to plug into this different kind of consciousness. I mean, they see everything, they know everything, they, they do, in fact, have a, a much more varied experience. But I don't think that their capacity for learning is truncated because of that. One of the deficiencies most frequently identified in the contemporary student is weakness in reading. Leah Bradshaw acknowledges that exposure to other media has made many of her students impatient readers. But she argues, first of all, that books are not truth's only avenue, and second, that her students can be brought to read when they are given clear guidance and assigned manageable amounts. When I teach the Emil, I spend a whole course reading that book. Well, I do a couple of other things too, but basically what I do is I ask the students every week to read a chunk of the Emil. It's not that much, 40 or 50 pages. That's all they read for my class. And then I lecture on it, and then they come to a seminar and they talk about it. So that's what I do. I deal, if I'm doing a serious course on a serious text, you know, I do 40 or 50 pages a week. I find that they can do that. And once they get into it and read the arguments and follow it, it works extremely well. They can do it. But you can't ask them to read a whole lot of stuff at once, and they have to sort of be trained into close um, attention to the text. So I stick very close to the text in the lectures and very close to the text in the seminars. Once after a couple of weeks, the students realize that that's the way the course is going to be done. They love it. They love it because they're not confused. They know exactly what they have to do. And they, they follow the argument. They get lots of backup from the lectures. I mean, this is just technical stuff in the classes. But, you know, I have a lot of students at the end of that class who, who say, this is, you know, this, this stuck with me. I will remember this book the rest of my life. Seeing this reaction from her students, Leah Bradshaw is not as pessimistic about the outlook for liberal education as many other recent writers on the subject have been. Inquiry into the nature of things, she says, is something natural to us, and as such, it can never finally disappear. I think that the quest for learning and the quest for truth is a perennial human one. I think it's attached to a coherent sense of order, even if that order is not completely knowable. And I think it's a question of keeping focused on that. Do you see what I mean? So it's not so much the medium. Again, I'm back to this thing. I mean, of course, I love books and I love to read and I love, you know, this has been my life. And, and I find, still find lots of students who, I have lots of students, I have to tell you, who still share this love. I mean, I think lots. You know, how many is lots? I mean, I have some every year, so I think that's lots. I mean, I think if you start, you know, the human beings have the capacity for love, and the human beings have the capacity to know, you know, those things are not destroyed. I mean, they're, 
twisted and perverted in all sorts of ways, but I don't think they're ever destroyed. And so I'm not that... I don't think they're going to go away because I don't think they're the product of artifice. I think they're actually the product of something real. I mean, I, you know, I actually love to teach and I get a lot from the students and I just find that that kind of pessimistic resignation just doesn't help anybody. You know, I find teaching to be a very gratifying thing. I find it, you know, it's really fun. So I, I'm not at all pessimistic about working in the university as the millennium approaches. Liberal arts, by definition, aim at no particular career. As such, they have inevitably suffered in the more pressured, more vocationally oriented atmosphere of today's university. But at the same time, there have been a number of energetic local revivals of the study of the great books and the great themes of science and art. In 1996, the Liberal Studies Association of Canada was established to link a number of new and continuing programs of this kind. One of the most notable of the new initiatives has been the College of the Humanities at Carleton University. Founded in 1995, the college offers its students a common four-year curriculum in the liberal arts, which comprises nearly half of their full academic program. Peter Emberley is the director and the prime mover in the college's creation. He says that it was born out of difficulties that Carlton was experiencing in the early 1990s. I don't think that uh, any founding doesn't ultimately arise out of a certain crisis and out of a certain recognition that um, um, things need to be renovated and things need to be reformed in order to stay healthy. And certainly Carlton University was in such a situation um, four or five years ago um, as a consequence of a very bad rating in Maclean's. Personally, I think absolutely undeserved. Carleton uh, faced a massive declining enrollments, but much more seriously, a crisis in morale. It was not only a crisis in the faculty and in the senior administration of this university, but also in the students themselves. Increasingly, many students were saying that their experience of Carleton University, I should, however, say that in subsequent experiences across Canada, I discovered many young Canadians were saying the same thing about their universities everywhere else, that there was no sense of community that the university had become a commuter university, that they were uh, increasingly understood as clients or as uh, isolated consumers of the services of the university, and they didn't feel that they belonged to the this veritable institution that they had been drawn into. So I had done a bit of writing on education, primarily focusing on the notion of a community of scholars and what it is to be part of the university as a community. And I was asked to put together some kind of a program. There were no definite contours to what some kind might mean that would somehow draw students back and make them feel that there was a community to which they belonged and to which they could uh, really contribute and, and, and be morally passionate about. So um, I struck a committee, and we met over about a year and a half, and we, um, quite appropriately, as uh, researchers and scholars, we looked at all the various pedagogical models available and read all the current research and looked carefully at a number of liberal 
liberal arts programs around North America and in Britain, and finally decided that the best way to instill the notion of a community and to, and to instill the notion of citizenship within that community and to give students uh, a rich intellectual life was to produce a, a core curriculum and to focus on three very traditional subjects, namely history, philosophy, and literature. We also decided that running against the whole tradition in education of giving students as much freedom and as much autonomy to uh, create their own curriculum, that ours would be an utterly prescribed curriculum. And the idea was not really to diminish students' creativity, but to ensure that they had a common experience um, and with, the, with their peers and were all exposed to the same kinds of materials that could then be the basis of what we thought would be richer conversations. Parallel with this uh, discussion over a year and a half as to what the curriculum might look like, we also pursued private funding because it was our feeling that um, it was time really to make a statement in Canada that the humanities are absolutely central, essential to, um, to, to the Canadian educational life and that it was would be a, a very symbolic uh, expression of that to have private corporations or private foundations fund a program like this. So we pursued private funding at the same time and were successful in finding that private funding. Somewhat, this was certainly disputed. We decided to make this an elite college in the sense that we would not admit students who had graded averages of less than 80. And in fact, as it turned out, when the applications just started to pour in, the cumulative grade average of the first two years was 88.6% in both years. So we, we were certainly looking at very high achievers. We didn't focus, however, exclusively and narrowly on grades. We also requested from the students very extensive portfolios of written and creative work. So it became a school that was really designed for students who had already shown extraordinary scholarly promise. And um, the curriculum we thought we were providing them would build on that and obviously take them in directions they hadn't yet thought of. The emphasis on excellence here, you've, you've chosen excellent students, you've given them excellent facilities. You, in various ways, they're privileged. How do you justify that? Well, I think that um, the young people whom we've attracted to the college are individuals of extraordinary capability and um, a capability that could also be very dangerous if it isn't formed well and if it isn't shaped and matured. Um, I, I mean that because we see in the portfolios just extraordinary creativity. We see some real darkness. I mean, there's no question that um, they've imbibed very, very deeply from the culture around them, a culture that, um, you know, has many images of death and, 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 and indecency and inhumanity, and, and we see that in the portfolios we receive. So I think that um, this group of individuals is, is, is a particularly uh, dangerous one, but also potentially, I mean, very enriching one. And so I think that uh, insofar as we give them such a very careful education, and we do try to mold their characters I think that we, we exercise a certain degree of responsibility and accountability to society. The molding of character, Peter Emberley says, is not brought about by overt moralizing. Rather, it involves a fostering in the students of a certain stance or disposition. He speaks of a psychic tonality, a note sustained in the soul. And he believes this intellectual mellowing to be a more reasonable and more achievable goal for education and the propagation of doctrines. The great difficult task in teaching is that as soon as you start to state what you believe is good and, and worthy of being considered seriously in propositional form, it is uh, 
very easily misunderstood, is very easily subject to immediately being opposed by an alternative, also placed in propositional form. And very often, the kinds of debates that ensue end up being zero-sum games. There's an exchange of propositions. One person's a Thomist, one person is a Marxist. They're incompatible propositions that are being put forward. And uh, in the process, I'm not sure if one is really teaching, particularly if the dispute is with a student. So in my mind, I think that our, our, our real task as teachers is to form certain types of experiences. And um, I think that the notion and, and this comes, I draw this unabashedly from George Grant, the notion of reverencing is a very important one. I think that uh, much about our contemporary culture does encourage the notion of empowerment, does encourage the notion that uh, everything is a challenge to be overcome, and the idea that somehow there are things that we ought to just reverence, and before which we can only stand with a degree of wonder and awe, is a very important ingredient of what is a human being, and out of which, I think, arise some very important intellectual virtues and also some very important moral virtues. I think, for example, our sense of humanity. But you can't teach somebody to be humane. You can't teach somebody to be charitable. But what you can try to do in education, through a myriad ways, um, it may be a reverencing of nature. It may be a reverencing of great authors. It may be a reverencing of the simple goodness of life that some people seem to personify and exemplify, that you can create a certain tone in a person that creates of itself certain moral virtues, a certain moral character, and ultimately a certain intellectual mode of life as well, a curiosity, for example. So I think that uh, the, the greater part of education is to form that kind of tonality in, in people um, and let the doctrinal propositions or uh, more metaphysical propositions arise on their own. Peter Emberley believes that this tone can be made to sound in the present generation as in any other. In this sense, he shares Leah Bradshaw's belief that the yearning of the young for meaning and direction is perennial. But he does recognize the special difficulties that are created by the speed of modern media, by what he earlier called the indecencies of popular culture, and even by the schools in which his students have previously been trained. There is a kind of restlessness, and the school environment encourages that. Uh, much about modern culture encourages that. So one of the most difficult things is to just have a student sit for a while. We're not a, we're not some, we, we don't cultivate that. We don't cultivate it through meditation and prayer, for example, that one just sit for a period of time. Most of the students who confess to me that they have grave difficulties um, reading books that, that I prescribe to them say so they can't sit long enough to actually be absorbed by the book. And of course the other major thing is, is that so much of the actual school experience in Canada does encourage that critical stance and the view that um, you have to have a point of view about a book. And so the notion of being caught up in a book and absorbed by a book is very foreign to them. So there are hurdles. But I, I, I don't think that they're insurmountable. And I actually don't think that um, I, I dislike the kind of um, argument from um, historicity or the argument from environment that somehow the young people who are in our classes today are in some very important way fundamentally different from the students of 20 years ago or 30 years ago. I think that uh, the idiom through which they express themselves is very much conditioned by 
things like the mass media and the political idiom of the day. But I think we're dealing with the same drama of longings and predicaments that comprise what a human being is. So I think our task is to try to meet them at some point and to seduce with uh, a wide array of techniques a passion that is nascently there and inchoately there and can be formed in the process of finding, creating the patience and the leisureliness that takes books seriously. Peter Emberley and his colleagues have been successful in creating this kind of atmosphere at the College of the Humanities. The fact that the college has prospered, attracting both eager, capable students and private support, shows, I think, the continuing vitality of the liberal arts. Those who believe that the university should be about the best that has been thought and said, in Matthew Arnold's famous phrase, may increasingly occupy only enclaves and small pockets within the institution, but they will still be there. On Ideas Tonight, you've heard part 14 of the Education Debates by David Cayley. Our series concludes tomorrow night with a program featuring two American writers on education and culture, Professors Gerald Graff and Martha Nussbaum of the University of Chicago. A schedule of the series is available on the CBC website. Go to www.radio.cbc.ca and look for ideas. Tonight's program was produced by Alison Moss. The associate producers were Liz Nodge and Kathleen Pemberton. Technical direction by David Field. You can get a printed transcript of the series for $25 or a set of audio tapes for $90, and those prices include taxes and handling. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. And stay tuned to CBC Radio 1 for the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers. <laughs>